Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? EU Confidential will get started right after a message from this week's sponsor. Today's episode is presented by Goldman Sachs. Today, sustainable finance is no longer on the sidelines, but increasingly core to a company's business. That's why Goldman Sachs is targeting $750 billion in sustainable finance growth themes by 2030. Learn more at gs.com sustainablefinance. Coming to you from Davos, Switzerland at the World Economic Forum, this is a special episode of EU Confidential. Welcome to EU Confidential coming to you from Davos, Switzerland this week, where we have spent the week covering the World Economic Forum. I'm Rim Mumtaz, and with me, Florian Eder. Hello. Hi, Rim. And Ryan Heath. Hi again. <laughs> So correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is that other than Donald Trump, and we've talked a lot about him, so perhaps today we won't talk about him, but other than Donald Trump, it seems to me that the speech or the keynote address by European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen was kind of the highlight of at least the speeches, the the official part of the World Economic Forum this year. I mean, we're probably biased because we cover European politics. So um, I think for our audience, uh, of course, it is, a, it is a highlight. But in all fairness, it was also the first time that, you know, this audience here got a real uh, picture and overview of what European Commission wants to do over the past five, over the, oh, sorry, over the next five years, um, as the previous Commission President, Jean-Claude Juncker, was not a big fan of Davos and was never here, basically. So von der Leyen, who is a, a regular uh, of this place and served in the Board of Trustees uh, of the World Economic Forum before, now in her new role, was here to set out her plans to uh, the business community here. And I guess also for the people here, at least that's what we hear when we when we talk to people, uh, it was kind of a highlight. So yes, um, because actually she set out her uh, new Green Deal again. It is a very ambitious plan that needs a lot, uh, really a lot of private money. Uh, so she's probably at the right place uh, here to make it known to the world that there's uh, uh, investment opportunities in Europe. Right. I'll be devil's advocate and say that there weren't really any highlights in the main Congress Center this year. Uh, I've been mostly trying to focus on climate and sustainability questions. So that was something that the WEF did a officially push very hard. But I found a lot of that interesting stuff happening outside of the the Congress Centre. And we should say Prince Charles did have a bit of a blowtorch of a speech. He's not going to be a ribbon-cutting monarch if he ever gets that crown. I think that's what we learned from that speech about sustainability. And I do think it was a, a bit of a tricky forum because the WEF basically imposed this massive theme onto everyone around climate and sustainability. So it made it anyone who went off that track seemed a little bit awkward or a little bit off point and I'm not sure everyone knew collectively how to sort of come up with an organic conversation because everything was a bit uh, top down this year. 
I think that's super interesting what you're saying. A, that this topic seemed to have been imposed. B, that an organic conversation did not take place. And it's interesting because, you know, the top biller was obviously Donald Trump. And if you heard the way Klaus Schwab introduced him and then thanked him, it just seemed like, I'm sorry to say it this way, just really a lot of groveling and not really calling him out for not being on the right side of the climate and sustainability um, issue. Obviously, Greta Thunberg was here and, you know, she always gets a lot of a lot of attention. But I was really struck um, when I read a quote from an unnamed CEO who said, you know, it's really great that Greta was here in order to change the conversation or balance the conversation uh, with Trump. I'm sorry, but is it really the responsibility of a 17-year-old to actually speak truth to power to someone like the U.S. president, isn't it the, the the whole purpose of this World Economic Forum to be able to have these unfettered, honest conversations between the most you know powerful people in the world? I'm I'm just left very perplexed by this whole situation. Well, I think we're probably in an era of polarization. I don't want to reduce it to that, but that means we are coming up to the limits of the World Economic Forum model of tackling problems. They are all about consensus and dialogue. And sometimes you can't get a clear result if that's all you're doing. And another example I would use there is the very pressing ongoing concerns about gender equality. And the WEF has for years made arguments that progressives and feminists would be happy to hear because they want more female participation. But they haven't really taken a head-on approach to tackle some of the damage that comes from the big companies that send only all-male delegations, for example. And then you end up in these situations where to create a balanced discussion, you need to be outside of the Congress Center at a place like the Female Quotient Equality Lounge. And there's lots of pros and cons about all that. Please give me your viewpoints on it. But it's a bit hard to get the result the West says it wants if it's not willing to tackle things in a more confrontational way. A.K.A. punish. Yeah, and then and then you get downsides too because people are angry and disappointed, and there's a loser as well as a winner. Well, it's not really cool. Yeah, it's not their business model, uh, and I would say it's probably not even their fault uh, to to some extent, because uh, people who are here are you know the CEOs or the C level, and as long as these people tend to be uh, men only, uh, it's hard to incentivize them to send. Uh, you know, a, if you're in in, in corporate logic, it, it would be random sending random women, um, which is obviously then also uh, against the kind of goal to have all these people together here who actually have a say on on stuff. So this is my first time at the World Economic Forum. And I have to say, even after a week being here, I'm still kind of confused or not very clear on what exactly concretely gets done here with these conversations. Could you shed light a bit on that? Well, actually, um, it's a very good question. Uh, question. I think uh, it's hard to summarize, honestly. Uh, a lot of people that I uh, meet here um, are here for two or three different purposes. One is because it's a regular thing and they love to be here. It's beautiful. Uh, and the kind of, you know, they, they love to listen to people like Trump, uh, uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, uh, von der Leyen, or uh, whatever. Then uh, many of them have uh, basically booked their calendars back to back with half hour meetings or 20 minute meetings. Uh, and it saves them a lot of money to do that here because everybody, you know, comes here. It's a centralized place and you don't need to travel around the world to meet all your peers and colleagues and policymakers and regulators and so on. 
I guess uh, what you what you mentioned is is probably not happening at all here. So there is no you know final statement. There are no conclusions. There is no compromise coming out of this. Even uh, if we journalists, we media always try to summarize what you know what happened this year, um, and it's it's always hard. And probably because there is just you know no such thing as a natural uh, uh, result or outcome of uh, a week in Davos. I wanted to go back to the equality um, lounge because on the one hand, so I spent some time yesterday there, I spent some time um, on Wednesday there, and I I was kind of struck because, you know, when you're walking around the uh, conference hall at the World Economic Forum, as a woman, I really felt um, outnumbered four to one or five to one even. It really is a sea of men, a sea of men, Western men in particular, but a sea of men. Uh, And then you go to to the female quotient equality lounge, and it's actually almost the opposite. And it got me thinking... Is that the right way to do it? Are we not just continuing the segregation? You know, we're equal, but next to each other, we're not together. I wonder if it's not just also helping kind of enshrine the fact that at the end of the day, they are an appendage. They are not part of the core conversations where, you know, the the real decisions are being made. Well, with this, we get right to the heart of one of the other tension points, which is exclusive versus inclusive. That always runs through what happens uh, at Davos. Reem's being a little bit modest as well. She did an amazing interview with Anthony Scaramucci, the guy who was Trump's 11-day uh, chief of communication. And who's very, very scarred and traumatized yeah, by and his firing. I think a possible billionaire at one point. And it's a very interesting interview. You can go watch that on, on Facebook. But the point here is that it would be much better if those conversations were happening inside the halls of power, as it were, the Congress Center. But the organizers of the lounge essentially said, we've been offered that chance and we've rejected it because it's only for the $50,000 ahead white badge holders and a few journalists allowed in every now and then. Uh, And we don't want to be part of that because equality is for everyone, not for people with 50 grand to go to a conference. And then that gets to the heart of would WEF be WEF if you let more people into that Congress hall? WEF itself has struggled with um, what it basically believes are the hangers-on who come here on the cheap, who get a what's called a hotel badge for a couple of hundred dollars, who come to these unofficial fringe events and so on. And if you are uh, the companies who pay all of this money, you want to get access to the top people. You don't want the hangers-on around you. But for WEF to succeed in an environment where everything is flat now because of social media, because of millennials wanting things to be done differently, it can't just do it the old way either. So you have all of these fundamental tensions that are now hitting each other, whether it's on climate, on gender, on the badges. I don't know where it's all going to land, but you really feel like it's it's not... We're all just growing in this happy global economy and we can all love each other. It's, it's not that feeling anymore. So that's a great segue. Just to end on this note, you know, th- this special edition that we're doing of EU Confidential, I want to go around the table quickly and ask, do you feel like this woke narrative that we've been hearing all week, do you buy it? Have you been convinced or not? You know, I'm a journalist. I'm here not because of any narrative. I'm actually not very interested in discussions whether uh, the WEF is, is successful or not, whether there is, whether its narrative uh, is the right one or not. I'm here to cover politics, and that is what we've been doing all week, uh, and I think we uh, did pretty well at that. Yeah. I think there is real movement on the climate and sustainability issues, but it's not movement in the way Greta Thunberg would like. It's not going to happen on the timelines that 
possibly the planet needs. But it is very different to people just setting an overall emissions target. I've been meeting with CEOs and chief sustainability officers, and the complexity of their sustainability plans is genuinely impressive. But I do think there's a bunch of people that, uh, you know, they want to do the top-line green stuff, but they're not exactly exiting their coal power plant deals or anything like that. And that's where you're going to have to see some more accountability. Otherwise, we'll come back here in a year and people will say, well, what was all of it for this year? On Florian's point, you know, I too come here with sort of that desire to cover politics, and I'm really struck by how little actual politics happens here as opposed to our usual beats. Um, on the woke thing, I'm of two minds. Uh, a part of me has felt in certain conversations that it's been very performative, like they know that they have uh, buzzwords that they need to slip into the conversation, especially when they realize that I'm a journalist. But at the same time, there are people who truly are trying to find ways, I'm, I'm talking about the, on the corporate level, who are trying to find ways to become more sustainable. And honestly, I don't think it's because they suddenly have an aha, eureka moment, and, and you know, they're now in touch with their inner conscience and, and the environment. It's, it's profitable now, a lot of these ideas. You exactly. don't need a government target to be told to do it, or even a tax break. Sometimes you can make a lot of money out of doing this. So the bottom line now is coinciding with also these calls for sustainability. And I don't think we should actually get on a moral high horse and say, well, they should be doing it for the right reason, regardless of the bottom line. At the end of the day, we are at the World Economic Forum. This is about corporations and the, the raison d'etre of a corporation is to make money. And my, my sense is, if we can continue building on that, then perhaps, you know, maybe not the World Economic Forum, but perhaps beyond that, we can get to a place where corporations and governments and activists can work together toward uh, more sustainability. Thank you so much, Florian and Ryan, for this special edition of EU Confidential coming to you from Davos. Thanks, Reem. Thank you, Reem. A message from Goldman Sachs. Today, sustainable finance is no longer on the sidelines, but increasingly core to a company's business. Goldman Sachs is focused on the dual themes of climate transition and inclusive growth to help its clients across all sectors navigate the transition to an inclusive, low-carbon economy. So what is inclusive growth? It entails supporting sustainable communities and drawing on innovative investing partnerships to provide more access and opportunity. And climate transition? It's when industries adapt their business model in response to a low-carbon economy. Goldman Sachs is committed to helping their clients position themselves for a future in which sustainability is core to all industries and integrated across markets. They will achieve this vision by doing what they do best, invest, finance, advise, and innovate to drive sustainable finance strategies that accelerate positive change. That's why Goldman Sachs is targeting $750 billion from nine sustainable finance growth areas by 2030. What are they? Learn more at gs.com slash sustainable finance. This is Stephen Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Politico. We're here talking with Professor Mary Beard. Mary is a professor of classics at Cambridge University. She's also very well known in the UK for um, her battle against the trolls on social media. She's come here to Davos to give a historical perspective to the forum, and also she's been talking about feminism and the history of feminism. We're talking in the corridors of the Congress Centre at Davos. 
So, Professor Beard, or Mary, as you give me permission to call you, so one of the things that's most struck me about this year's doubles and uh, last year's doubles was the spectacle of a very powerful man in his 70s picking a fight, if you like, with a 16, 17-year-old, she's got one year older, climate activist, um, and sort of like singling her out as what he called this year um, prophet of doom. Do you think that there is um, some sort of um, imbalance in power between the two of them, or is Greta Thunberg actually the one with the power? Well, I think it's quite interesting, and I... I have to say I was a bit surprised by the media headlines of Trump's, after Trump's speech, which made it all about a battle with Thunberg, when actually I thought it was about quite a lot of other things, which certainly in the non-US press got rather left out. I mean, it was, as far as I could remember, 28 minutes of boasting about my achievements. And many of those boasts, I thought, needed to be examined a bit. And it got overshadowed by, you know, this was a David and Goliath match um, with Thunberg. Now, I think that Thunberg is, is, you only have to be here a, you know, a day to realise that Thunberg has, has had an extraordinary influence not just in terms of the popular imagination, um, but actually in getting people to think that they can't any longer be ostrich-like about this. I I think Trump is being a little bit cheap. And, you know, in the end, I think that the Thunberg effect has been excellent, but I don't think that a a kind of standoff between Trump and Thunberg is going to get us anywhere, really. But do you think, so the the WF has included about 10 teenage um, activists this year, one of whom is 13, actually, one of them I met. There's this sort of idea that it's a bit uncomfortable for for older, powerful men to be told off um, in a public space by a 13-year-old woman. You know, anything that makes older, powerful men feel a bit uncomfortable from time to time, I'm quite happy with. But, you know, most of the time they don't feel uncomfortable, so okay occasional bit of discomfort, you know, uh, that's all to the good. And, and I think that, you know, why not, um, you know, diversify this a bit? And there's all sorts of different ways of diversifying. Now, I think you have to be not too naive about that. And you know, I've had a great time here. Um, it's, it's been absolutely fascinating. Um, I felt very welcome. Um, and I've met loads of interesting people. I still on Twitter get comments saying, but you realise you're only there as a sort of acceptable smokescreen for the rich and powerful men in suits. Uh, That's not how it feels to me, but I think there is, you know, all big institutions of power, whether governments or big businesses, have have ways of, you know, using fig leaves for that. But I think, you know, if you are the fig leaf, I think what's interesting is that, you know, fig leaves do fight back and fig leaves do change things. And if you do have kids here saying things that are unpalatable, then, you know, actually, some of that might actually take root. So um, I, I think it's not a good idea to be too cynical. About Davos, so a little bit of cynicism is, you know, definitely called for. But being too cynical, I think, misses the way that institutions are made to change. One thing you you, you made a very bold stance on in in Britain um, about social media. About the, you got you came in for some terrible trolling on on Twitter, and um, you sort of um, spoke out about that. Have you noticed any difference in the way you're treated in social media these days, or indeed in the way that other female politicians, female journalists, are treated in the in social media? Um, I think it's a pretty bleak time for women on social media, and you know you only have to go and look at something like Diane Abbott's Twitter feed to see 
really appalling stuff. I think that I've had a little bit easier, probably because I was being trolled by a rather limited group of people and um, because I took them down a peg or two. And so I suspect they rather, you know, it's not that I have an easy ride, but I don't have the, or at least I don't have very often the, you know, I'm going to cut your head off at 2015 tomorrow, you know. Is that what you got literally, the kind of threats? Yeah, that's the kind of... I mean, what women get on social media is, is, is often really not broadcast because it's so terrible. I mean, and do you think, you know, have you demanded, do you, do you think there should be a particular policy response from governments or regulators or the tech companies? Should Twitter be, Twitter be doing something about you being trolled, you and, and, and other women being trolled on Twitter? I think that, that Twitter can sometimes be a bit slow to respond to complaints and sometimes something which is widely... I can't really think of a good example now, but there are things that people think are widely unacceptable, which don't actually fall into Twitter's reasons for reprimanding somebody, you know, because you know, they're dealing, to be fair, with it, an awful lot of things, and they have they've generated rules to make it easier for themselves. Um, but I think that I think they could do more. Uh, I think that I think we could all do more. I think that you know, in, in part, Twitter. And other forms of social media you know, needs to be policed by its users as well as by, you know, the platform that's running it. Mm. And I think that it's it's no bad idea for people to say politely. I just think that is, please don't do that. Now, when I've responded like that on Twitter, um, you certainly don't have a hundred percent success rate. That would be, you know, it, that is not the case. But you have a you have some success. So you've got to take it a bit into your own hands. And um, there's an awful lot of people here from the uh, tech companies talking about social media. You've talked a little bit about um, how in ancient civilizations they were not possibly quite not so obsessed with making super quick technological innovations uh, as we <laughs> well, are now. We do seem to be well, in a fairly accelerated mode, don't we? Yeah, I mean, I think what's very interesting about um, the ancient Roman world, but also the Greco-Roman world really, is that uh, technological innovations did not happen for more than half a millennium. You know, nothing. We've grown up, all of us, a world that's changed technologically beyond recognition. And I think it's, it's no bad thing to think about what, what it was like to live in a world that wasn't like this. And I think one of the things that history helps you think about, it doesn't help you solve today's problems in any very kind of convenient, off-the-peg way, but it helps you think about a world that's different. You know, so we're so used to some things about our own society that we forget that other societies didn't live like that. And yet... You know, the Romans could, they might never have had Twitter, but they had different ways of being very nasty to each other. You You don't need social media to be nasty. That was our very own Stephen Brown in conversation with Mary Beard. And now let's turn to Florian, who had a chance to catch up with Luxembourg Prime Minister Xavier Bettel. What was your highlight so far? My highlights for far was, uh, you know, I just arrived this this morning, so uh, I had uh, a lunch with my Belgian uh, colleague, and uh, I'm now we are a bit late because Will I am wa- was uh, occupying your your boot. Our, our studio here. Yeah. Your studio was occupied by Will I am, but uh, you were strong enough to ask him to finish uh, quickly, so uh, that we are able to be here now, and then we have meetings the whole the whole day. I. Uh, Strongly believe that the, the, this here is an opportunity to exchange 
about ecological problems, but also about uh, a digital uh, agenda, about the AI, about the risk also of the digital uh, agenda. And I'm very proud that uh, my country is uh, very ambitious on uh, if I if I speak, for example, on environment uh, points. You know, um, such a platform like here is uh, like the UN, where we usually exchange. When at the UN, it's more frontal listening. Here, it's mostly exchange, and this is important. There's there's criticism uh, of Davos that uh, refers to exactly that that there's a lot of exchange and people talk a lot, but there's no concrete outcome of this. What we do? What would you uh, uh, respond to such criticism? Yeah, this is in the forum. A forum is a place where you discuss. It's not an executive body where they take decisions. But the fact is, if we decide to do things and we make it publicly. We have also a uh, public opinion pressure afterwards to, to fulfill what we, what we said. And, uh, for example, this is uh, Mr. Von der Leyen, Ms. von der Leyen and Mr. Trump are discussing. I don't know if they had a lot of discussions yet. Uh, so because of Davos, they are able to meet in January. And the commission just uh, took a few months, a few weeks ago, if you want the, um, uh, the positions. And so because of Davos, they were able to, to, to exchange. Tomorrow, Wednesday, is also the day where the European Union is, is kind of in the focus with uh, the special address of the speech by uh, von der Leyen, the Commission President. And we understand she is going to focus on, on the Green Deal that she, uh, that she announced. Is that going to happen this year, this Green Deal? Because it's still contingent, as we understand, on uh, the multiannual financial framework. As long as there is no money on the table, uh, uh, there will probably not be a meaningful Green Deal. We need it. I think it's not a choice. It's not that we can, we can decide if we want it or we don't want it. It's a, we need it. My country really believes that uh, this Green Deal is a very important uh, step in the right direction. And uh, we do not agree with the financial framework now on the table uh, done by the former presidency where we insist also in the wrong directions. But the Green Deal is on the top of that. So my country has produced the last years really green products, uh, finance products uh, for the world market. And I see that the success is big. So I think we are, we are still open to see how we can work um, closely with the Commission on that because we will need the private sector to invest uh, also uh, uh, on it. I just see that for the moment we have these goals that we also want to reach, that we have this transition fund that we want to have. The transition fund is the fact that we have some countries who have a different history in how they produced energy, and so we need also to help them for the transition, but we cannot be in, in souk where you say, uh, how much do you give uh, to give your agreement? No, this is not how it works. We need to, to have goals and to see how it works and not by just uh, being ambitious if some people get a check. That's not what I want, because if Europe is just making a check to get an agreement, then I think we go in the wrong direction. We need to be ambitious, we need to support countries who have more difficulties, but it cannot be just a money reason to, to support an ambitious uh, goal that we have for the next generation. And do you think these countries who have difficulties should be uh, the ones with a lot of industry in there? Because we understand that, for example, others who are more agricultural countries feel not treated uh, fairly um, if all that money goes to you know, Poland, for example, or Germany. 
uh, where there is a lot of industry that has to make the change. Um, is that something that you can understand? The fact is, if everybody just see the budget from his point of view, uh, it's not how European Union should work. Um, you have to be able to give to be able to take. But if we take decisions to to be more efficient, we need also to be able to have the the budget to do it. And um, so it, I have it also in my coalition program to say that if we need an ambitious Europe and with an ambitious budget, we will be part of it. Another issue here and one that is dear to you is equality, gender equality and, and LGBTI rights. Uh, is there anything that you are going to, to address while you're here? Is there, um... Yes, tomorrow morning I have an, uh, a panel uh, where LGBTI about uh, with young leaders and with, uh, I don't know, but there is a panel. Uh, for me, as I always say, I'm not the gay prime minister, I'm the prime minister and I'm also gay. And so uh, I think if people are here, they are here because uh, uh, of their profession or, or about what possibilities they have to explain stories and everything. And the gay prime minister is not going to meet the gay CEO of Apple, but Tim Cook is going to meet uh, Savi Buttel and both are gay. And that's cool. And in a company, if you know that your boss, or in uh, administration, if you know that your boss uh, uh, doesn't hide, so maybe if you are even on the lower level of the scale, you say that it is accepted. And um, I don't want to be a role model, but uh, I just have one life, so I don't want to. I don't want to live it just to make uh, other people's happy by making them believe that I'm something else that I am. So I am like I am. If they don't like me, they won't vote me. Davos is not probably is not an environment where you feel uh, that some people do not like you, right? No, I, uh, I I I feel very well. I have a lot of I even have friends here. I met some uh, CEOs of uh, different companies. We see us every year in Davos, but uh, even then they try when they come to Europe to come to Luxembourg. Then we have dinner together, and I think this helps also for for my country. Uh, this helps uh, to to have a good exchange with the private sector. And it's something I uh, really want to, to continue to do also uh, uh, as long as I'm Prime Minister, to have this intuitus personae uh, with, uh, with the CEOs and not only to speak business, but also to be able to speak about, uh, about everything. And we'll leave you with this interview that Florian did with David Miliband, who's the head of the International Rescue Committee. In December, you wrote a letter to EU leaders uh, ahead of their December summit, urging them to step up, uh, saying that the EU is not pulling its weight when it comes to migration policies. Did you get any response on that? Well, we did get some interest, and uh, obviously the, the summit came and went. But the truth is that if Europe, if the wider world doesn't manage migration, and especially doesn't manage refugee flows then those flows become a problem, not just in the states from which people are fleeing, but the states to which they are fleeing. And I always say to European uh, colleagues that the choice is not between whether we have migration or not. The choice is whether or not we have regulated, legal, orderly, planned flows of people or disorderly, unregulated flows of people. And the most important specific thing that we were arguing in our letter of my letter of December, was to take the resettlement package, which is literally the plan transfer of the most vulnerable refugees, or at least some of them, uh, to help relieve pressure in countries like Jordan or uh, Ethiopia, and give uh, the families a new chance uh, in Europe. And that 
uh, package at the moment is stuck in the middle of a wider migration uh, package. People are some people are sympathetic to that. We're still waiting to see the new commission and the new parliament fully find its uh, their sea legs. Um, but I think that uh, my reflection on uh, Davos so far is that Europe's place in the world is there to be installed and asserted. Uh, but it but the, the the climate is a difficult one. Is that the main talk of this year's Davos for you? Well, I, I've been very struck by the anxiety that many participants, governmental and uh, business uh, backgrounds, have felt about a new world that they don't that doesn't conform to the contours or the compass points uh, that we have known. And it's a world where the United States is carving out a different role uh, for itself. It's a world where rising powers want to write new rules, not just have more say about the implementation of old rules. And it's a world where actually um, Europe's regulatory power is actually a very significant part of hard power. And I think that the challenge and the opportunity for the new commission is to deploy that power in an effective way. It doesn't have to be a, a bullying way, but it has to be a way that defends um, European interests and values. And so I think that's my reflection only after 24 hours here so far, is that there are more questions than answers, and Europe needs to try and provide them. What's the main reason for you to come to Davos? So I run a, an NGO, and I think there are really three reasons to be here. One is that the voice of civil society is important, and the voice that I represent is of our clients. The International Rescue Committee helped 27 million people in war zones and refugee-hosting states around the world. And our staff members who see an age of impunity, and the talk I'm giving on Friday is about, um, it's called Welcome to the Age of Impunity. And it's an age when uh, combat competence in war have no interest in abiding by the rules of war, and that means there are more civilians and more aid workers killed than at any time in recent uh, memory. Uh, the second uh, reason uh, for being here is that there are important NGO corporate partnerships uh, that um, are really making a difference, and we want to uh, build on those. And thirdly, if you're running an NGO, you're always on the lookout for the passing billionaire who is going to turn into a major philanthropist. So uh, I suppose those are the three reasons. <laughs> How's the success so far? So, well, I'm doing this interview, so I, if I'd found the billionaire, I maybe I would have, uh, I, I would have had to cancel. So I'm, I'm still on the hunt. Uh, has the atmosphere in, in Davos at the World Economic Forum changed over the years? I mean, you've come for, for a while, no? Um, I mean, I think that the differences are often exaggerated. And it's still a gathering that is predominantly the, econ the global economic elite. However, the composition of that elite has changed over the last um, 20 years. There's no doubt there's a much more significant gulf presence than there was before. There's a more significant Russian presence than there was 20 years ago. And there's a more significant but understated Chinese uh, presence. Obviously, the, uh, some of the American delegates behave as if the world is America. But... Uh, I think that there is a, there are a lot of question marks in American minds about the trajectory of the country. Certainly as someone who lives in New York, no one can tell you with any certainty how the country is going to approach this fork in the road that the election represents in November. 
Tuesday's excitement here was mainly President Trump. Um, I thought Greta Thunberg was the excitement. Well, here, and, Greta's, uh, and Greta Thunberg, indeed. It was this, uh, uh, you know, the two of them uh, representing two very different um, ideas and leadership styles or however you, you call it. Speaking of this economic elite, um, my impression was a little that they're actually compared to two years ago, for example, that they're over, that they moved on from Trump. Is that uh, something that you would share? I think that there is quite a lot of bullishness in the U.S. business community, but there are also a lot of American business people who are, who are questioning whether or not they can sustain a, um, a version of capitalism that is as uh, dog-eat-dog as it seems. And I think that that, isn't, that obviously wasn't reflected in the president's speech. He's got to organize his campaign around a story of American renewal. But I think that for the business community that I've listened to so far, they're certainly smiling at the president when they're in his presence, but they've also got questions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. We are back to our capitals next Thursday, and we'll speak with a few British MEPs in their final days as members of the European Parliament. I'm Rim Mumtaz. Thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. 